once again, welcome to the Tuesdays at 2 with your Sun Country MEC. Looks like the line through the door has slowed things down. Let's go ahead and kick this off. Just a couple of items before we get started. I just want everyone to be aware this is being recorded. We do record these and we try to get them uh, put up as soon as possible onto our Sun Country uh, pilots, the ELPA YouTube page. And you can find that. That's real easy. It's youtube.com backslash S-C-A-M-E-C. And you can use the at symbol there. That's at S-C-A-M-E-C. Real easy to find the YouTube channel. We're also available on podcast servers. So wherever you get your favorite podcasts, we can be found there also. You just have to look up the Sun Country Airlines MEC podcast. Sun Country Airlines MEC podcast. That'll bring you right to our podcast. And like I say, we get these things edited and put together in the proper format and posted as soon as we possibly can after this. I, I know we're a little behind, but I've got a bunch ready about to be released and we'll get those out to you. With that being said, this is a public forum. These recordings will be released on uh, public platforms. Let's all uh, try to stay as professional as possible. We love questions. We want to hear your questions, but if you really need to vent, you know, that might be a good opportunity to call us individually. Uh, Eric, Will, myself, we're always available for you to take your calls, questions, emails, text, you name it. We're here for you. Uh, let's Otherwise, let's try to just keep the questions to the topic at hand. That way we can keep a nice little, uh, you know, concise presentation for each episode. Do appreciate you all joining us. It's very important that you get this information directly from the MEC, understand what's going on. It uh, That's just the best source of information. With that being said, I'm just gonna toss things right over to Eric because I know he's been working really hard to get his presentation ready for today. Eric, take us away, sir. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. All right. Um, yeah, uh, I think Kevin covered most of this, right? Uh, these Tuesdays at two seminars really are supposed to be, you know, contract basics and kind of a deep dive into, uh, um, you know, one week after the next kind of building on each other. Uh, just kind of due to the nature of um, uh, the amount of work that's going on, uh, I think it's important that we kind of uh, throw a little news brief in there, right, and try to keep uh, everyone informed as to the, all the moving parts right now that are going on uh, with the airline and the operation. Um, so that said, uh, we're going to dig into today's plan here a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit about PAC participation. Um, for the most part, we don't talk about uh, ALPA PAC outside of uh, new hire class, and um, I have some uh, participation numbers. Uh, I just want to let, uh, let the pilot group kind of know where we stand um, in terms of our participation relative to the rest of the industry um, and the rest of the ELPA properties. And um, just kind of give everybody a good uh, good sense of what that, that program is and what it does, right? Uh, also, just want to talk a little bit about uh, pay comparison and pay charts um, so that everyone understands kind of where we're at now in the industry as we come through the two-year mark on this contract and uh, are looking at uh, midterm bargaining, which of course uh, there's no uh, pay uh, in that midterm bargaining process, uh, but then start to turn our eyes to section six, 
which is about uh, 18, 19 months out from early openers, right? Uh, as well as how that uh, is going to play out a little bit. Um, uh, all right. Uh, some new stuff. Uh, I want to talk about the long trips negotiation. I'm getting a fairly uh, steady stream of calls uh, from commuters uh, regarding uh, long trips um, and how that negotiation is going. Uh, it is going slow, um, and I'll give you an update there and have uh, Zillin speak to that a little bit. Uh, also, uh, midterm bargaining is going to be delayed a little bit uh, just to avoid the holiday weeks. So I'll, uh, I'll bring everyone up to speed there. And I uh, want to talk a little bit about strike preparedness. So SPSC, right, uh, strategic planning, strike preparedness, uh, very important subject as we um, uh, have a very different uh, tone and tenor with this management team uh, since the departure of, uh, of OC, who was more um, interested in uh, interest-based bargaining. And as the labor policy shifted, um, uh, it's going to require a shift from us as well. So, um Oh, I want to talk about, uh, excuse me, uh, long-term disability benefits. We have some updates on that. And then uh, just some general discussion about 117, uh, the soft program, and uh, how the fatigue program is being administered, uh, as well as what is a, a management pilot. Um, there seems to be some drift there contractually, and uh, fairly important that uh, that, that safety program uh, remains, um, let's say, uh, outside of a labor contention, right? Um, and also uh, available to this pilot group and administered properly, uh, and that the people who are administering it are able to give, um, you know, the uh, the level of service to this pilot group that is uh, necessary in terms of knowledge of uh, 117, uh, the FOM, and uh, the fatigue policy. So, uh, all right, so Alpa Pack, uh, this is us right here at 2.5% um, in terms of participation, right? So um, this isn't dollars given total. This is uh, the percent of participation of the pilot group, right? So um, it may be that, uh, you know, we have 2.5% of the pilot group each giving uh, $300,000 a year. Um, and money-wise, we're way ahead, uh, but uh, what it looks like, right, is 2.5% uh, uh, total participation, right? Um, that may be 50 cents uh, per month, right? So what, uh, what we should try to do is up this a little bit, right? Uh, it's fairly low. You see the leaders here, um, Delta, United, um, Hawaiian, right? Uh, Got some good participation there. And you kind of get down into some of the regionals here, you know, um, uh, Spirit, JetBlue, Endeavor at 4.3, we're down here at 2.5, uh, Air Wisconsin and Envoy just trailing us, uh, and then kind of a, a mix of uh, the smallest of carriers down at the bottom there. Um, so uh, our, we're under-participating um, and should probably uh, try to get the news out, talk to people, and help people understand what the pack is, right? So um, it is a pilot partisan agenda. So if you look on the left here, right, this is kind of 
Republican Democrat, right, for a political action committee and uh, total funds given to a political action committee. This is not what ELPA does. ELPA does what's on the right side, which uh, it's a pilot partisan split, right, and it's giving to different chairs and different uh, different groups of um D.C. leadership uh, or even state leadership in order to try to forward uh, the pilot agenda, right? So uh, normal PAC um, dollars are split up like what you see on the left. And what the uh, the ELPA PAC does is this partisan uh, pilot partisan um, uh, agenda, which is on the right, uh, which means that it's not uh, driven by the political party, right? But it is driven by uh, the politicians uh, commitment to pilots, right? All right. So, uh, what does the pack do, right? Um, this is one of the things we did, right? Get on the get on the phone and talk to your senators, right? Uh, talk to Amy Klobuchar as we uh, rolled into COVID and no one was buying what we had to sell, right? And uh, sought relief funds and were able to obtain those funds uh, faster and more efficiently than. Uh, the funds that were given through the uh, employee, uh, the PPP programs, right? So uh, transportation got some different money and uh, worked completely differently than uh, the rest of the industry. And a big part of that was the Alpa PAC pushing uh, with uh, dollars that are given by um, pilots uh, through uh, their own contribution. Right. Um, so uh, some of the things that PAC works on, single pilot uh, flight decks, right, uh, flags of convenience carriers. Uh, I used to hear quite a bit about that. That's died off just a little bit, but still is a, is a threat to uh, U.S. carriers. Uh, Part 117 rest rules and the overhaul of 117 was largely pushed by the PAC. Uh, FFDO uh, programs were funded um, instead of ended. And uh, FAA reauthorization bills always become uh, kind of contentious, right? There's about four years there where um, it was done through extensions and uh, the ELPA PAC helped to uh, stabilize that and make sure that the FAA was funded properly. So uh, it's important stuff to our jobs, right? Um, note that uh, as a political action committee, right, uh, the PAC is our voice and importantly, as a political action committee cannot use dues dollars. It's illegal to use dues dollars. That's why uh, we seek uh, pilot contributions, right? And why the ELPA PAC is 100% uh, contribution funded. Um, again, uh, working to elect pro-pilot candidates, uh, educate lawmakers, and uh, all to get to the pilot partisan agenda. So uh, to sign up for the PAC, all you gotta do is go to this uh, link here which takes you to um, a page that looks like this, right? And you can just sign up online. Uh, there, there have been issues with uh, dues deduction of the pack, the checkoff programs. Um, the company at one point had ended uh, those contributions improperly. Um, you can uh, circumnavigate that problem by simply doing it through the uh, other amount box here and uh, doing it through a credit card, which is what I do after they cut off my contributions. Um, yeah, so let's uh, take a look here at pilot pay comparison. I think it's important to mention too with the pack, it really doesn't have to be a large amount, dollar a month, right? Um, and, and that gets us uh, gets us back to this number here, right? 
50 cents a month per pilot. Uh, if we had 100% participation, we'd be looking pretty good. Um, all right. So pilot pay comparisons. Um, this is the captain slope, and this is what the industry is going to look like as of January 1st, right? So about a month from now. Uh, you can see Sun Country is the orange line here, right? And this is what our, our captain pay is going to look like comparatively to the rest of the industry. Uh, you can see our line follows pretty tightly with the other ultra low-cost carriers such as Frontier. Um, Spirit has moved up. They're the blue line here now, right? Their line um, quite a bit higher than ours now. And uh, if you look out, right, even when we get to, you know, year 12 here, uh, still significantly below, uh, as you can see in the next slide here. Um, you got United and Delta at the far end, right, 353. Um, and then uh, kind of trending downwards, here's us now, 276.79. Uh, two years from now, right, um, looking at just short of 300. But uh, still, um, you know, roughly $50 short. The reason I'm going through these slides, right, is as we go through, um, uh, let's say, a period of contention, uh, which is unfortunate, right, because uh, everyone should be working together to um, create stability and a place where pilots want to stay long term, um, right, we're choosing, uh, at least management is choosing a labor policy, which is uh, very, very different uh, from uh, where these other carriers are at and has a pay disparity to boot, right? Um, so while, you know, things like long trips, which are causing uh, commuters a great deal of consternation and difficulty with their schedule, um, and they could easily be uh, working longer stretches, which they would be happy with, and, and is in fact something that uh, none of, uh, I believe, just looking through the list here, yeah, none of these carriers have any construct for a long trip like that at all. Um, I know Delta has some longer trips, nine or 10 days, uh, but most of what I see in their bid pack is uh, just three days or kind of six days. Uh, they literally have no ones and twos and have no fours and fives. It's kind of just three days, and at least on the seven three, um, three days and six days. So, um, you know, that program, that long trips program, really provides something to commuters that uh, these other carriers don't have. And uh, you can see if they, you know, don't have um, some silver lining in terms of their commuter life, uh, they can easily move to another carrier and make uh, make very good pay, right? So this is 12-year captain pay. I think the uh, first-year captain pay is somewhere down in the $300 range. Um, you can generally kind of go through these and, and subtract about, you know, $1.52 uh, an hour um, backwards uh, per year. so about $20 less, uh, $25 less, right? Um, by the first year, and then there's a little dog leg down. So your first year pay around 300 bucks, I believe. Um, uh, one of our pilots who recently left, uh, who was a commuter, uh, went to United, uh, was given an upgrade uh, to a 7-3 captain in uh, ground school as a new hire, and his rate will be roughly $300 an hour. Um, 
hard to compete with, right? When we uh, at Sun Country are doing uh, something very different for much lower pay, um, you know, treating pilots poorly, not following 117 rules, collapsing training department, um, or contract implementation and hiring Ford and Harrison to do union avoidance, right? Uh, all with a lower pay rate. Uh, here's the uh, FO slope, right, where the orange one down here, again, coupled up with uh, with Frontier. And uh, just want to mention Frontier is hemorrhaging pilots, right? Um, so much so that they're completely changing their business model to adjust, hoping that that uh, change will allow them to survive, right? Uh, but here we are, orange line, right? And, of course, uh, up at the top end, um, American, Alaska, Delta, right? So uh, same kind of graph here for FOs. You can see where we sit um, with a 12-year uh, FO rate. Uh, so this is topped out FO 183. Look at uh, top end of the scale here with uh, Delta uh, 241, right? So... And 50, 60 bucks an hour, pretty much across the board, right? Uh, differential. And um, that's, a, that's a lot to make up when, um, you know, uh, the quality of life is suffering uh, pretty significantly. All right. Uh, on the news front, um, just want to talk a little bit about strategic planning, right? So what you're seeing, right, is the company making a shift in their labor policy. They're moving away from interest-based bargaining. Uh, that's the kind of bargaining that happens where um, both sides have things that they need in order to, um, you know, make the business viable, right? Um, so pilots need a, a few things. Company needs a few things. You go into a room, you talk about what you need. Uh, you... Uh, try not to become anchored in the ideas that you have and the things that you want and maybe work through your ideas together to change them uh, in order to get to a point where both sides get what they want. Maybe not in the way that they want it, but in a different way, uh, creatively uh, work to come to solutions so that both sides um, uh, find uh, common ground and a way to move forward. And as a result, the company becomes more stable and is more successful, right? Um, when you move away from interest-based bargaining, right, and you move into distributive bargaining, you end up in a situation where uh, one side is trying to beat the other side, right? Uh, plain and simple, uh, somebody loses and somebody has to lose um, in distributive-based bargaining, Um and uh, it's the kind of bargaining you do when you toss your anchors over the side of the boat and um, refuse to move off of your position and decide to pull out of a negotiation um, if you're not going to get what you want the way that you want it, right? The company chooses to set labor policy. Uh, we do not choose. Uh, we have to react and um, strategically move accordingly, right? So um, we're working to make a shift away from interest-based bargaining and work inside of the um, regressive uh, and um, aggressive uh, policies that come along with distributive bargaining, right? That means 
that we need to become prepared as a pilot group uh, for strike preparedness, right? Because our bargaining efforts are going to look like the bargaining efforts that you see uh, at Alaska Spirit Frontier, right? Um, the line of Alaska pilots um, in, you know, uh, Washington, D.C., outside of the shareholders meeting with uh, the management um, uh, shouting down, uh, you know, six inches away from the face of another pilot, right? Um, that is what bargaining will look like at this company uh, unless the company chooses to move in a different direction with their labor policy. Um, uh, it's unfortunate, it's regressive, and it is uh, not the productive way or the successful way to bargain. Um, but if this pilot group does not move along uh, with this and start to understand that we're going to be standing on the street corners with signs, um, we simply aren't going to succeed. If you walk into negotiating uh, thinking you're going to do interest-based bargaining and the other side is going to do distributive bargaining, um, watch out, right? All right. Um, there's going to be a delay with uh, midterm bargaining. Um, so we're going to modify uh, 31C2 uh, of the contract uh, just to change dates, right? So uh, the current language uh, says... Uh, no later than December 21st, um, 2023, but no earlier than November 21st, 2023, right? Which is to say, um, you know, uh, the earliest that you can exchange items and either party can exchange items would be November 21st. And uh, those items need to be exchanged before December 21st. Um, we're going to change that to December 6th and no later than January 5th. Uh, with the idea that um, both sides are going to be better served by having two full months without uh, holiday breaks and uh, the complexities of uh, all of the peoples involved, uh, their schedules, right? So um, we'd lose a couple weeks of negotiating. There is, a, I believe, a 60-day arbitration backstop on this, uh, this process. Right. So yeah, basically we have four items, company has four items and 60 days to negotiate those items. Right. So uh, if we were to exchange uh, the items on January 5th, we'd be looking at a, about a March 5th arbitration deadline. And uh, there's, you know, besides spring breaks, uh, which generally kind of happen in the middle of March. Right. Um, really not a whole lot between January 5th and March 5th, uh, which gives both sides uh, the ability to really focus in on uh, the eight issues, right? So important that uh, there's continuity there, that both sides are working diligently through the 60-day period, um, or otherwise it's going to be difficult to come to solution, right? And uh, certainly moving important negotiating items into an arbitration where an arbitrator makes uh, literally arbitrary decisions or may or may not understand the complexity of the issues at hand, uh, you really would like to um, have the full 60 days to work through kind of uh, complexity, right? So uh, small change in the language, short delay, uh, but probably will result in a, a better outcome for everyone. Um, all right. Uh, I want to talk about the long trip LOA a little bit, right? So the company agreed to meet with the negotiating committee. This is not an uh, insignificant bullet point here, right? Um, the um, 
let's say the culture of negotiating, right, um, hasn't been uh, a good culture in the sense that both sides meet and work through things um, diligently uh, through complexity, right? And uh, it's important with the long trips because there are a significant amount of items that uh, need discussion beyond what was in the trial period out of the way that both sides meet um, and actually discuss those items and come to solution. There's uh, quite a few moving parts and doing them through bullet points and email is not a healthy negotiating uh, relationship. So uh, the fact that the company agreed to meet uh, after you know two or three months of uh, feet dragging, uh, very important, uh, very significant. And I think it's a good sign. Um, the company did enter into that discussion indicating that they weren't going to move, um, but they sent completely different people in, uh, Brian Scuds, uh, who's a labor relationship, uh, re labor relations manager and, uh, Jeff Bosch, um, who is kind of the functional guy in terms of crew planning. Right. And, uh, that is a shift away from the labor team in terms of uh, who we've seen in the past, right? And they're sending uh, kind of the mechanics people to go and uh, have this discussion. Um, I think at a uh, crew planning level, right, there's quite a bit of discussion uh, between Ingalls and, and Bosch as to what could be done here. Um, certainly for Bosch, he needs to make sure that uh, what he agrees to is functional and works and he doesn't get himself into a complicated corner. Um, but we're hopeful that uh, he understands the issues and can act as an advocate uh, with folks who don't necessarily understand what uh, the long trips all the way involves um, in order to help people through um, setting up a construct that is innovative and different and a new idea and experimental uh, and do it uh, effectively and um, make sure that this company has a competitive advantage uh, to the rest of the industry in hiring and retaining commuters, right? Uh, to get to that point, we need to make sure that we have uh, a permanent negotiated solution, right? The permanent part here is very important as well because um, the company's view, right, was that the LOA uh, was a bridge to PBS and um, a way for pilots to better preference what they wanted until the PBS solution was in place, and then the long trips LOA would simply end. Uh, clearly, that isn't where this pilot group is at. They want a solution that continues long term and commuters are making choices about whether they stay at this property uh, for the rest of their career based on whether or not the company is committed to uh, allowing them to work inside of a construct like this. Uh, with that, it's important that this MEC um, pushes for and is committed to negotiating a long lasting solution that the company is willing to codify in an LOA. Um, and that means an LOA that doesn't die when uh, PBS comes along, right? Having an experimental trial period uh, with end dates that keeps getting re-upped is not a way to bet your career and the schedule that you're expecting to get. Um, so uh, we need to succeed with a long-term plan. 
uh, we are pushing forward with a long-term negotiated and permanent solution, right? So um, lots of questions. Uh, why isn't this done? Why hasn't this uh, finished yet? And just remember uh, to focus your anger on the people who are not here to meet, right? Uh, not the MEC who pushed for the long trips to uh, develop and succeed. Um, we had two meetings, uh, Zillin and the negotiating team, uh, first one on 11.2 and then another follow-up on 11.8. I think those discussions were fairly uh, productive. There was, um, you know, some listening to uh, both sides of the issue and, um, you know, seemingly a willingness to move on some issues. That doesn't mean that uh, when that when those ideas move back up uh, through the silos, up to the C team that the C team has buy-in, unfortunately. They didn't send the decision makers to the table, right? Um, that said, they let uh, Bosch um, mostly negotiate PBS on his own. Um, they got themselves tied around the axle with PBS in the end a little bit as it moved up into the C team. Um, hopefully that doesn't happen in this case. Um, uh, in terms of uh, negotiating dollars being put into this effort. Uh, it is being done uh, through the JPWG leave, so it is at the company's um, detriment if they waste our time negotiating. Um, uh, we're not putting funds into things that the company walks away from. Um, all right, uh, the company did cancel the 11-15 minute uh, meeting at the last minute, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, uh, our side did a lot of work to prepare to have meaningful conversations. It would have kept up a, a good, solid, meaningful cadence, uh, right? Uh, 11 to 11 8, 11 15, just meet once a week until you get this thing done and through. Um, and now we find ourselves, you know, uh, some two weeks later, uh, looking out to the second week of December uh, due to the availability of the company to meet. Uh, so it's moving slow, right? And it has uh, midterms bumping up against it pretty quick here. Um, so uh, this slide, right, is just to say hey, we really need an innovative commuter solution. You've heard me say it a couple times already through the uh, beginning of the call here. And uh, where we're at with uh, commuter pilot attrition, it, it simply isn't sustainable. I'm getting calls from... Uh, you know, guys that have been here a good solid 12, 14 years who are going, I, I can't do this schedule anymore. Um, I had some path out of this with the long trips. I had a schedule that was working for me. I made decisions about staying here based on uh, being able to bid those long trips. And if the long trips aren't in place, I'm going to have to leave, right? Um, which, you know, myself as a commuter for six years in my career, I understand uh, losing the days at home and the stress that that places on home life and, um, you know, the the inability to even get to work uh, is, is very complicated sometimes. So um, all of this was part of, a, you know, a larger package uh, in terms of the MEC's uh, objectives which uh, had to do with positive space commuting and um, what it, which kind of ended up as the uh, deadhead deviation program, right? I think that program uh, is unique in the industry, um, very, very good for our commuting pilots, but it really needs to be coupled to uh, some long trip options because uh, really a commuter wants to eliminate their commutes as much as possible, right? Uh, commuting twice a month, 
um, is kind of ideal. You know, you commute in once to work, work your 12, 14 days or whatever, and commute back home. And then the, you just lose the two days, maybe two half days if you're lucky, um, instead of, uh, you know, ones and two day trips where you lose uh, an enormous amount of days due to commuting. Um, what you find right in times like uh, this coming into December with some countries flying, right? Uh, we get into the island flying, uh, all of our uh, flying kind of uh, recenters on passenger flying, and we, we make hay while the, the sun is shining, right? Um, which is to say the flying gets much more efficient. Uh, there's more days off in everybody's schedule because we're flying long legs. And that's great for the local guys, right? For the commuters, uh, their quality of life goes down significantly because they simply now uh, have to contend with a bunch of day trips and don't have an option for, uh, you know, long trips and a pre-bid that keeps them away from, uh, you know, a series of 12 or 14 turns. Um, so they end up bidding red eyes. They're exhausted, right? Uh, just trying to find a way to navigate the choices that are in front of them. Uh, and we don't have, uh, let's say, some of the bidding options, right? Because um, our passenger operation is still um, just a small part of uh, a three-legged stool, right? So uh, they are stuck with uh, flying that is a very, very onus for a commuter, while for uh, a lot of the pilot group, um, you know, day turns are, are desirable. And truly, um, this MEC uh, fully supports, as does Zillin in the negotiating committee, um, a path to making commuting uh, viable at this airline and solving it in a creative way. And um, also, nothing has changed from what we've been saying for the last five years, which is we need to attract and retain commuting pilots to grow. This airline isn't growing for a myriad of different reasons, uh, you know, some of which have to do with uh, what new hire pilots are seeing as they come through the door and experience the, a failing training department. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of reasons why people are trading out of here, uh, least of which is pay and training, right? Uh, but if you just can't make the schedule work, you have to leave. You really don't have a choice, right? If you're losing eight days a month to commuting, you just can't stay uh, no matter how much you want to stay, right? Um, all right. With that, uh, Zillin, I'm just going to have you talk a little bit uh, about what you're seeing at the table, where you think, um, you know, the the discussion is going and whether you're seeing real interest there on the part of the company and if you think there's a solution coming um, in terms of uh, long trips for commuters. Okay, Eric, thanks. Um, yeah, uh, we've had two meetings, as Eric pointed out, uh, two meetings in November. Uh, they were about an hour each. That's all they were really planned for. The company seems to have like an hour window. Um, to give everybody kind of a little bit of background, we're meeting, as Eric said, with uh, mostly Jeff Bosch and uh, Brian Scuds. Uh, the first meeting, they did have their Ford and Harrison attorney there. The second meeting, the Ford and Harrison attorney wasn't there. So I, I'm not sure what really to read into that. Either he wasn't available or they decided it wasn't worth their time and effort to have him there. Um, he, in the meeting he was there, he didn't say anything. I'm sure he was probably just taking notes and, and listening. Um, the 
came to the table, the company's impression is we were just going to kind of roll over the LOA that we had before. And uh, we had met and talked uh, on the Alpha side prior to this meeting and prepped for it. And we knew the desires of this pilot group was to make this a long-term uh, program uh, that would be available to pilots here at Sun Country Airlines, uh, whether we did it prior to PBS or after PBS. And we knew uh, that was our goal going into it. We met with the company and basically expressed our goal that we wanted to you know, continue this into PBS, uh, that we didn't see this as just a bridge till PBS starts because PBS will not build these trips. They will not give pilots the ability to bid schedules necessarily that produce the same quality of life uh, for commuters. And it was something that was highly desirable by a good portion of the pilots here, commuters and non-commuters. We, people we have at the table on the company side uh, are those two individuals I talked about on our side. We have uh, Michael Turner, uh, myself, and uh, John Kitch. Uh, we are the ones that are kind of on the outside. Jody Bettenberger, our uh, contract administrator, she's always there. Uh, she is a really great note taker, legal advisor when we're talking about you know what we can do, what we can't do. So that's really who's at our table. I've uh, been talking with Tim Pavlish, who I'm working with on the PBS stuff, uh, because we're, we've discovered in our early talks that, you know, if we're going to continue this into PBS, the timelines of building the long trips and so forth uh, have to match up so that, uh, that those long trips can be built, bid, and we know who's going to be in the bid package, so to speak, for PBS. So we did discover some things that have to be realigned, some dates that'll have to be shifted. We also discovered, and I'm not sure the company, I think they were aware of this, uh, we talked about in the last meeting, was that this also affects uh, the instructor pilots. That the timelines in section 18, it's kind of like you pull a thread, and the next thing you know, something else unravels. Uh, those timelines and how the the instructors are scheduled and get their schedules and so forth will have to be determined earlier because of PBS. Um, so there's a lot of things that have started coming to light here in these discussions that are going to need to be fixed. Some are directly related to the long trips, some are not. So I've been consulting with Tim Pavlish. I'm bringing him in uh, as we can uh, to work on these long trips too because his expertise in the PBS world will help us with the timelines and how we make sure all this stuff you know seamlessly transitions into pbs that's kind of what we've been talking about on our side the other question i think uh, eric asked there was you know what's the perception um it seems to me the stuff that we've talked about with the company when you're talking on the with the jeff and brian level they seem to understand uh what we're trying to do uh they seem receptive on a lot of it but what I'm hearing a lot in the discussions is that, as we've talked about, and you all probably heard us say before, the siloing in this company. Um, they're like, well, we don't know if training scheduling will allow us to do this. And it's like, you know, it really has to raise to a higher level. Uh, we can't let one department or one area hold the whole process or whole system hostage. 
so we, we're hearing a lot of that stuff, and it has to do with what I call the siloing, and we've all called it that for a long time, of the different departments. There's no body over there really that's overarching, looking at the big picture um, of how the different things in the contract and the different areas should work together and the departments should work together and how something should function. It's just everybody's got their little kingdom, their little world, and you know, they don't want to give up any of their their control or turf there. So that's kind of what I'm seeing at the table. I'm I've seen this before where we have really productive conversations at the table, and then when it goes to the next level up, uh, like like Eric said, the C-suite, uh, the next level of management, how they will react to this. Um, it seems to me from some of the things that, that we've heard from the company is that some of the things we proposed will actually make these trips more efficient for them cost-wise and better for the pilots. So uh, there seems to be some win-win stuff in here, but I've seen this in the past where for whatever reason it goes to the next level and it's like anything that we change that might help the pilot, even though it's good for us, is bad. So that's kind of where we're at. We're, in fact, right before this call, I was working on emails and talking to uh, the people on our side, trying to gather up uh, when we can get together with the company again. Uh, the earliest is going to be at the outside is actually, I think, going to be, I have to look at my calendar, next week, I believe, which is kind of that uh, end of the first week, first part of the second week of December, roughly. Uh, we haven't got a date nailed down yet. Uh, I know... Uh, Jeff um, is in Greece uh, working with Ames like next week, so it's going to be really difficult for um, much to happen next week. We might be able to, I don't know how they'll pull it off, but I guess depending on the timing of the meeting, he may be in Greece and we may be here. And So that's part of the problem is the company has all their people stretched really thin. I feel bad for them in a way. They, they have not enough people doing too little work and on too many projects. You got to realize that not only does Jeff uh, have to run the day-to-day -day operation of crew planning and so forth, but he's also working on PBS, which uh, I'll, if Eric wants, I got a little update on that I'll give um, here in a moment. But, you know, Jeff's working on PBS, he's working on the day-to-day -day stuff, he's working on the long trips, and, you know, and not just along the pilot side, I think he's involved in the flight attendant stuff too. So. It's really, we're meeting about twice in November for about an hour each meeting. And I'm guessing right now, if I had to make a wild guess, we'll see about the same uh, in December. We're looking at right now, if I had to be optimistic, we'll get a couple meetings in before the Christmas you know, holiday season. And then at that point, you're back, you know, first part of the year next year. So um, I think if I got the timing right on this, to get this done for Ingles and catch to be able to produce the long trips and get them out for bid about the earliest we're looking at is about March. And that's if everything was kind of wrapped up in December. Um, I'm not trying to be a pessimist here, but it's pretty unlikely that it'll be wrapped up in December would be my guess. I would like for that to be the case, but it's not moving at that. Yeah. Kind of on that note, Zillin, um, I still hear a fairly uh, regular um question which is why not just turn on what we had before and continue with that um what does that do to kind of the negotiating uh, picture 
Well, it, 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 if we want to make this better for the pilot groups, it, it takes a lot of the leverage away. The company is getting some advantage out of just turning it back on. The pilots are getting less advantage. Uh, we're looking at building better trips, more trips, uh, you know, more efficiency for the pilots, more efficiency for the company, uh, and also carrying it into PBS. I mean, we, you know, I can tell you right now we could turn it on probably uh, right away, but, you know, there's no guarantee it would continue past about another six, eight months, depending on what happens with PBS. So it would basically, you know, we can do a short-term gain and forget about the long-term or we can play the long game. Yeah, I think that's about right. Um, so uh, some of the stuff I have up on the board here on this slide, right, just kind of, um, oh, general parts of the discussion related to long trips i mean some of this like the multi-month bid we have kind of sussed out with the company um and there really isn't there's nothing there right and the idea what we wanted to do right is to do kind of a three-month long bid um so that you could know what your schedule would be you know as a commuter three months in a row uh it would allow you know pushing your work to, you know, strategically towards the beginning of one month and the end of the next month uh, to give long stretches of time off uh, and know that you were going to have that time well in advance, right? Um, uh, what are what are some of the problems with, with that uh, particular bullet point that we've run into? I'm not sure I'm tracking you on that question. Yeah. So um, uh, when does the company get their, their Amazon schedules and do they even have the ability to do a multi-month bid? Yeah, they're, they're, right now it looks like from what they're telling us that's pretty impossible. There's some really odd things that go on with when they get the Amazon flying. It comes out at weird times of the month and it seems to kind of shift. Um that it would be very difficult to do a multi-month bid uh, with the Amazon stuff. And then when you start looking at the charter stuff, even the ad, not just the ad hoc stuff, but the what they call the program charters, um, they don't know a lot of times they haven't uh, finalized those schedules until just late, late before the bid package comes out. In fact, it's going to be with the timelines that are already agreed to in PBS, uh, there's some things that are going to be problematic in the company marketing people and so forth. They're already screaming that they're, you know, can't do it that early, can't do it that early, can't do it that early. Um, so a lot of the timing on this has to do with the company is setting their schedules and setting when these trips are going to happen. Um, that, that is a big, huge problem that we're dealing with right now. Right. Um, so currently, uh, the contract doesn't allow for a report out of domicile, like to report in uh, Alliance or report in San Francisco. Uh, we report in Minneapolis and then deadhead to those locations, right? And yeah. have deadhead deviation is one of the tools that we use uh, to get there, right? Or or own uh, transportation where you get simply just released altogether. Um, uh one of the questions that keeps coming up and has been kind of hanging out for better part of two or three years uh, in discussions with the company involves, uh, you know, cats or commuter accessible trips. Um, 
I guess, are we having any discussions yet with the company about uh, out of domicile reports with uh, the long trip discussion uh, currently? No, the the uh, no, it's on our list of things we want to discuss with them. But uh, I'd say that first meeting was a was a good meeting. We laid out kind of where we were. The second meeting was a little bit disappointing with the company because they they showed up and when we ended the first meeting the week before, we kind of had. There was like, I don't know, half a dozen things, four or five, half dozen things that the company was going to do some homework on. When they showed up to the meeting, they hadn't done their homework. Um, we were able to kind of talk about some other things like timelines and what we would need to do for timelines to do this. And, you know, when do they get their their information to build trips and so forth. So there was some productive things happened there, but there were a lot of things that the company was supposed to uh, easiest way to say it is do their homework on it. They, they didn't show up with their homework done. Uh, so the, back to your question is, no, we haven't talked about that. I know there's a good ideas out there that we would like to discuss with them how to do this, but uh, the only discussions we've had with this goes back probably almost a year, two years now, at least a year or more. Um, and there was some really bizarre thinking going on there. Um, it really looks like something like what FedEx does is you would get your trip, uh, long trip, and you would call them up and say, hey, I live in Poughkeepsie and I don't want to come to Minneapolis and my trip is starting in LA. Can you, I want to deadhead deviate basically. Our deadhead deviation language is a really good first start in how we would foresee uh, these long trips going. Then they went. Deadhead you to Poughkeepsie, but all the pay and, pay and credit uh, would you know be based on your domicile, of course. Um, so it wouldn't matter whether a pilot in Minneapolis got the trip or the guy living in Poughkeepsie get it. They just help them get to work. Right. Some of the questions that start to emerge there have to do with um, you know how does the account for 117 duty and where does the duty start? Does it start at home? Uh, does it start when you report? Uh, how much time would you have to have off uh, from the time that you arrived on a travel day until the time of the report for the flying? Uh, where would the report point be, right? Um, all of those things kind of uh, start to emerge when you you talk about these kind of the four things on the right side of the screen here, right? The yeah. out-of-domicile report release, travel days, positive space travel, hotels on travel days. These are kind of company items that the company has been talking about since oh july of 22 right that they yeah. talk about in the context of cats um but there's a you know no reason to not do them in long trips right oh. um it certainly would help commuters out quite a bit and uh you know if we could actually put a positive space travel sticker on uh, what is already there with mm -hmm. dead deviation, we can advertise it to the rest of the industry and attract, right? Yeah, it's, there's some, uh, like I said, there's been some really bizarre thinking on the company side there, but really uh, cats for the good or the bad, it's really the long trips with dead deviation is really uh, what cats is. Um, when you start looking at the 117 aspect, I'm not a 117 expert. I've been on, you know, working on this stuff for a while and kind of got a fair understanding of 117. I think it was about a year ago we had a 
long conversation with the 117 experts at Alpa National, and we probably time to tee that up again and, and do a review with them. Uh, but uh, the FAA is taking a lot harder line, uh, from what I understand from that conversation, of travel. And what I mean by travel is it doesn't really matter whether it's pilots commuting on their own time, uh, company-provided transportation, et cetera. The FAA is becoming more critical of that. And uh, it all goes back to something I know you're going to be very familiar with, Eric, is the Colgan accident. Um, the FAA is concerned about whether you're on your time or on company time, the travel and getting, getting to work. Um, and where the FAA seems to be leaning to is that anytime you're in route to work, uh, that's going to be probably considered time that's going to count toward 117. Um, the there yeah, is the important point there being whether you are paid or not paid is irrelevant. Yes, and that's that's kind of where it's starting that's, to lean towards. Where this all started came out of was my understanding from that conversation is. There were companies, and I believe Delta was one of them, that was doing positive space commuting for their pilots during the pandemic. And the FAA was like, how are you accounting for this time? And they're like, what? These guys are commuting to work. And that's where that conversation came from. Uh, that's what kind of started started this. So this is a hot button issue, or at least it has been with the FAA. Um, so it's something that we have to take into account when we're looking at these long trips. So um, my guess would be where this will end up with the FAA and is that if you live in Poughkeepsie and you have to dead head to LA, you show up for your your trip. They're going to look at that that dead head from, well, I shouldn't call it dead head, but the travel. I'll call it travel because it doesn't really matter whether you're dead heading or, or you're traveling to get to work. Um, it's probably going to be considered 117 times. So your travel would have to be accounted for so that you're in rest or you're off duty that day uh, to comply with 117. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and there's a lot of interest in, in 117 around here uh, suddenly, um, both in the training side and the flight ops side. Um, uh, FAA is very interested in what we're doing. No. Um, all right. You know, uh, I guess uh, any of the other bullets on here that are um, you think worth uh, kind of digging into in terms of the conversations that you've had already with the company or just in terms of the pilot group having knowledge of what we're discussing? Uh, yeah, the one that really kind of jumps out, I guess, is the, the we're not looking necessarily at a 12-day trip anymore. We're looking at maybe like, a, I don't know, a five and an eight or, you know, whatever combination, uh, but it would be probably five days or greater. From what uh, Kitch tells me is that when he and Ingalls run the let just the computer run wild and just build efficient trips, eight days is kind of a sweet spot. So we've kind of looked at that a little bit. So these long trips may look a little bit differently. So that a commuter might have a six-day trip on the front end of the month and a six-day trip on the back end of the month, and he's got the whole middle of the month off, or vice versa, you know, some combination thereof. So there are a lot of different things that you can do to make uh, you know commutable trips or desirable trips uh, or lines that can be flown uh, with that doing something different like that it wouldn't necessarily be all 12 days um, that's one of the things that kind of jumps out out there yeah yeah 
Yeah, uh, another important point to kind of uh, work through, right? That has uh, it's a long conversation and not not an easy thing to uh, just flick a switch on and say, yeah, it'll be fine, right? Um, yeah. Got a lot of stuff to work through there. Another comment we got from the company that was that was interesting is that you know, the, the, as I recall, they believe that mixing of the flying because right now it's just all Amazon stuff, but mixing of the flying uh, will help. Uh, reduce their cost so so they're you know we'll see if they get there on it though yeah that's right yeah operationally and cost wise uh the least operational risk with the most savings um ends up at a four-day trip right anything longer than four days is uh, generally not desired by crew planning right and -hmm. their risk when we uh, when we move into these long-trip constructs uh, their concern always is, you know, the domino effect of the operation from day to day. Um, you know, you have a mechanical on on day, you know, three, and does that mechanical continue to affect you all the way through day twelve when you're running late, right? Yeah. Um, you kind of go out onto these lines, and you, we don't cross back through uh, hubs like you do in you know, some of the larger you know, more conventional operations. And so that delay uh, may simply just, you may never catch back up with yourself, right? Yeah, Um, not familiar enough with, you know, why Amazon, you know, sets up their flying the way way they do, but it's kind of like that's why FedEx and UPS kind of have hubs, is you got a kind of a recovery there. Um, The way, at least they're using, seem to be using Sun Country and the flying we do is there's, there are certain spots, you know, like Lakeland and Cincinnati, and it kind of moves around and shifts around from kind of uh, as time goes by, month, seasons, I guess you might call it. Um, but you're right. There's no way that, you know, all these airplanes are planned to all come back through Cincinnati and that, you know, we can change out these crews and reschedule them or do something different because somebody, you know, ran late and they got a time issue. Or we can even have a reserve pilot there. So that's part of what we're dealing with here and seeing this part of the problems. Yeah, that's right. So by mixing uh, the cargo and, and passenger flying, I should say that the limitation in the original long trip LOA um, uh, of cargo only, that was a company request um, uh, that drove that. Um, we would have been happy to mix cargo and passenger for the most part. Um, uh, the company uh, wanted that to be Amazon only. Uh, they were thinking of them as as Amazon lines, right? And what happens when you can connect with some passenger operation, right? All of the, a lot of the deadhead is eliminated, so a lot of the rig pay uh, kind of um, diminishes, right? So the long trip cost problem, um, which you know the company had framed as uh, a half day of uh, one half man day uh, for, you know, 12 or 14 uh, long trip lines. It was an additional half man day for all of the rest of the people in that position, right? Um, That is caused purely by the cargo only uh, construct. And when you mix passenger and cargo together, you eliminate a lot of that rig pay and as a result, uh, the long trips are essentially 
uh, cost-wise uh, in the same ballpark uh, as uh, a normal, you know, uh, line with the uh, three-day turns and, and turns and whatnot, right? So uh, the whole point being that uh, if we can eliminate some of that cost, right, there really is no reason to um, uh, eliminate um, uh, or not have uh, a significant number of long-trip lines available, right, which that is where you get access to um, long trips for as many people as want them, right? Um, a much more regressive way of doing that would be to separate the pilot group essentially into two different groups and say, you bid over here in this group, right, uh, Minneapolis, and you bid over in this group over here, Xanadu, and um, you, you're not allowed to bid on the other flying, right, which would be uh, detrimental to both groups as you're not getting a solution uh, that you can bid on either side of that, right? Um, so simply by decreasing the costs and making long trips essentially cost neutral, then there's no reason to uh, limit the number of available trips at all. Uh, there'd be no uh, significant detriment to uh, a local pilot uh, to offer those if everyone can bid on them, right? Uh, important part being everyone can bid on them. Um, all right. Uh, domicile overnights are a bit of a conversation to have there, too. I, I you know, I was told there's some traffic on Facebook about that this week. Um, uh, remains a, a point of contention. Um, truthfully, uh, there's uh, the definition of a layover is uh, out of domicile. So, uh, yeah, can't overnight in Minneapolis. Um Anything else on that, Zillin? No, um, it's, it's, I guess, uh, not trying to be pessimistic, but it's moving slow. Um, like I said, we, we had a, some productive parts of our last meeting, and but I was disappointed they didn't show up with their homework done. And, and we basically found some things that are going to need to be worked on to make this, you know, seamless with PBS, which I think, you know, that was the most productive thing that came out of the last meeting that I can recall. Um, and that's one of the things we're going to have to work on. And we really kind of are getting to the point on some of this stuff, even though the talks have just talk, started, um, we're going to have to get some sort of indication from the company whether what they're willing to do, not willing to do. And as you pointed out, there's not a, any decision makers at the table. Um, Jeff and Brian, I don't think, have any authority to say, yeah, we're going to mix the flying and we're going to move the timelines back and um, we're going to continue it into PBS. Um, at some point, it's like there's not a lot of point in putting much more into this until the company kind of agrees to those, what I would call big items there. Yes, this is what we're all trying to do. Now, that doesn't yeah. mean just to echo kind of what you're saying there, right? What a, a lot of um, a lot of what I hear out of the company is that this is a, a pilot ask, right? Yeah. And something that they're not necessarily interested in. Um, uh, and truthfully, uh, from the beginning of the long trip construct, uh, it was the MEC. Um, you know, forwarding this as a you know a way to attract and retain. Right. 
Uh, we were looking at trying to attract uh, cargo pilots. Uh, yeah. We were looking at trying to offer commuter solutions and do creative things that would allow this company to expand. Um, uh, the company has framed this from the beginning as a as a pilot ask as a result. And um, it's just work for them to have to go negotiate it, right? Yeah, um, it's, it's, that is absolutely correct. And we've also talked with them and said, you know, we think this will, you know, will it solve the upgrade problem? No. Will it help the upgrade problem? Yes. Um, it's all part of the, it's all part of the puzzle, right? That's um, right. It is all part of the puzzle. It is definitely part of the upgrade puzzle. Um, likewise, uh, the uh, the company I think is not hearing from commuters that they're going to leave or are disappointed uh, with the company, right? Um, uh, truthfully, uh, the company needs to engage and take action here and understand that um, a part of their pilot group is simply going to leave them uh, if they uh, can't get there on, on this issue. Um, they hear it from us on a regular basis, but, uh, you know, there's kind of this uh, uh, disbelief that what we're telling them is, is real, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I, what I hear from a lot of the pilots when I'm out flying, they're just like, well, I'm waiting to see what happens. I'm waiting to see what happens. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I'm not sure how fast it's going to happen. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks, Dylan. Thanks for the work on, uh, on the long trips and what you're working on with PBS. Um, do you want to talk to, uh, about your update on PBS just for a minute? Yeah, just real quick. I won't get into too much de detail here, but uh, we had uh, right before Thanksgiving, I think it was the 17th, if I remember, was the date. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. We had a meeting with uh, NavBlue to review uh, the LLA with them and go through what they would need to program, you know, kind of the details of, of that. And we ran into, I don't know, three or four, half a dozen items that um, are going to have to be worked out. One of the larger is our uh, definition of a pilot day. Um, it seems to me that what I was hearing in that meeting, and I don't know if Pavlish is on here. He can talk better to this than I can. Um, that there's, a, there's a big problem with our pilot day. Uh, we thought we had come to a resolution on how it could be handled in PBS and addressed it in the LOA, uh, but it looks like that's not going to be possible, and that's going to be a, a big, I hate to say big problem, but it's going to be a problem that we're going to have to deal with here relatively quickly. Um, and uh, Yeah, kind of what you're talking about there is the the 24-hour day starting at 0200. Yeah. So the the gap between 2400 um, and uh, 0200 is uh, problematic because the core programming of NavBlue uh, goes on a 20, uh, you know, 0001 to 02400, right? Sure. And so it doesn't know how to account for uh, the calendar day starting at 0200. Um, the company and uh, the JPWG had worked through this problem, created a solution that uh, worked for, you know, both sides in terms of the labor questions. Um, but uh, 
apparently um, there was not a lot of discussion with NavBlue as to how difficult this solution was going to be to program. NavBlue saw the solution and went, uh, we could program that, but we got to rebuild the whole program from the start, and it might be a couple years. Yeah, it was going to be about a year or so worth of programming, maybe. So um, anyway, so that uh, that being said, that there's there's like I said, there's a handful of items that need to be resolved that came out of that review with NapBlue, uh, and right now there's some you know email traffic with NapBlue getting some questions answered on some items, and uh, we don't really have anything scheduled with the company to talk about how to handle that and like i said the people that are involved in this very heavily uh rian and jeff they're going to greece or in greece now i can't remember when they were leaving to come and go but it, this basically this week i think it is or next week they're they're going to greece um so they're dealing with aim stuff which is maybe related or semi-related to pbs but it's they get more work than people to do the work so. Yeah, that's right. All right. Thanks, Dylan. Appreciate You're that. You're welcome. Yeah. But we'll talk to you in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, just give you guys an update on the improper denial of long-term disability benefits. Um, there's a, a developing grievance happening here, right? And that's kind of what, what we've been doing with these calls is kind of trying to um, walk people through week to week how a grievance kind of uh, occurs, right? So the facts that it happens and then uh, what's the language behind it and how the grievance process seeks remedy uh, and then comes to resolution, right? So um, we've been talking about this process now with uh, long-term disability benefits probably for about a month, month and a half. And we'll just keep working through it um, week to week uh, as it changes, right? So um, just a recap here, kind of what the fact set is, right? Um, we have multiple pilots who were denied long-term disability benefits coverage. Uh, what's happening is MetLife, who is the company's uh, vendor for long-term disability, denies the coverage uh, when the condition that results in a disability has been uh, found to have resolved, right? So you go to your uh, your family doc and, you know, the a uh, broken finger is now resolved and you're, you're out of your cast and you can move your hand and he says you're good to go back to work, right? Which is fine for uh, a, a normal employee. Um, a normal employee probably wouldn't even be missing work because of a broken finger, but uh, as a pilot, we lose our medical and uh, we need to go through the medical uh, process, right? Um, so what's happening is from the time that the um, the family doc says you're good to go back to work. Uh, benefits were being turned off, um, so your pilot would have no income if they had uh, gone across the 90-day uh, elimination period, and now we're into the, the long-term disability uh, payments, right? So um, the company, uh, clearly, you know, the, the practice had been in the past that these were approved, and they moved along swimmingly, and there was no issues. Um, certainly for the 20-some years that that language has been in the book, um, I assume it's been there in quite some time. 
um, with very little change, uh, and uh, the practice had been just moving along without, uh, you know, uh, a gap in coverage. Um, so uh, what we're finding here is that uh, MetLife uh, was given some other charge, uh, probably by the company themselves or the um, the vendor that they're using uh, to run their HR department uh, in terms of benefits, right, uh, which is a, a labor mitigation uh, outfit called Ford and Harrison, right? So, um, so the pilots uh, lose their income uh, from the time that the family doc says that they're better until the time that they get the FBA medical. Um, clearly, you know, we have a specific language that is a negotiated coverage for coverage in this circumstance because we have uh, different needs uh, than uh, a normal uh, employee. And uh, we have a, a collective bargaining agreement uh, that says that uh, we have a benefit that is different from an office employee, right? Uh, so this is the language uh, 27B, right? Uh, you can see here the long-term disability elimination period of 90 days, right? Um, so the long-term disability benefit shall be subject to a 90-day elimination period from the onset of the disability, right? So from the day that you break your finger, uh, you are uh, on... Uh, the elimination period until uh, you reach uh, day 91 and then turns on uh, your long-term disability benefit, right? So uh, for the first 24 months uh, after that elimination period, then uh, that LTD benefits are payable. Uh, a pilot shall be considered to be totally disabled under the plan if due to illness or injury, such pilot is unable to perform the duties of his occupation as a pilot or is unable to maintain the FAA medical certificate uh, required for his permanent position, right? So, um, you know, you have an illness or injury uh, way back on day one, and um, you get into day, you know, 300, uh, or sorry, um, uh, day 120, right? And uh, you're supposed to be getting a uh, long-term disability benefit uh, until you get your medical back, right? Even if you become uh, well on day 91 or day 82, um, you don't have a medical yet, right? Uh, you can't perform your occupation. And uh, what the language does here, right, is simply says that uh, you are, um, due to whatever illness and injury that was, not on what day it happened, but due to that illness or injury, uh, you don't have a medical and you are um, uh, totally disabled under that insurance plan uh, and eligible for coverage under that plan until you have a medical back. Um, so there's a couple of twists and turns here that I wanna walk through. Um, and I think it's pretty important uh, kind of how this is being done um, in terms of the the legal maneuvering that is happening, uh, because um, there's a little bit more to it than just uh, the long-term disability benefits changing or MetLife making a different decision, because MetLife doesn't make decisions on their own, right? It's the company telling MetLife what to do, and um, probably at the advice of Ford and Harrison. So, um, 
you know, uh, simply said, past practice supports LED, uh, LTD benefits being paid till the pilot has received an FAA medical. Um, it, truly, this hurts uh, our most vulnerable pilots, and it is um, uh, incredibly stressful. Uh, some of these folks have gone through quite a bit uh, just with their illness alone and then uh, suffer, you know, a loss in pay to uh, cap it off, which, uh, you know, if you've been on long-term disability benefits making 10 grand a month for the last 24 months, um, you know, it's not that it's no money, but if your, uh, you know, your home and lifestyle was um, centered around a you know a three hundred thousand dollar a year job, and now that's cut to one hundred and twenty, and you have a you know six thousand dollar a month mortgage, life got pretty complicated pretty quick, right? Um, and then to have no income um, for some period of time until the FAA uh, manages to uh, process your medical. Woof! Um, that is, uh, that's really, really complicated. Uh, on that point, uh, I know that uh, Carl Severson and SERP are looking at getting a group together um, just to kind of walk through some of the stressors that are happening there. Um, uh, fairly important that there's a, a safety net and other people to talk to about that. And so we'll continue to work on setting that up. Um, uh, good news, right, is that the company agreed last week to pay, I believe, four affected pilots, okay? Um, the problem with this, while it looks like a win on the surface, right, is that they're refusing to uh, put into language that commitment that what is in the book, in the black and white language, uh, is actually consistent with the practice, right? Um, they won't say it in the room, they won't um, write an MOU, they won't uh, clarify uh, in a legal sense uh, that what is in the book that you just read uh, back on this page here says what it says, right? And what they're doing is they're setting up a notion that um, uh, uh, they can make a choice, right, as to whether that pilot is uh, eligible or not eligible. Uh, for benefits, which is not part of what's in the contract. Um, it's also unclear to us if there's additional affected pilots. Um, you know, we made a you know general call out to the pilot group saying, hey, if you're on long-term disability, reach out to us um, and stay close because we have problems on the horizon. Um, but we don't necessarily know that uh, we have talked to everyone who is on uh, long-term disability. Um, Certainly, there's people also who are on long-term disability who have not yet gotten that sign-off from the family doc uh, who are about to run into this problem. And if the company is taking the position that, you know, they're going to pay pilots based on a one-off basis um, and not necessarily agreeing to the language that's in the contract, uh, the problem has not gone away at all. Uh, it remains uh a significant issue, and um, it's not where this can be, right? Uh, so this argument that we're seeing, um, it mirrors an earlier argument um, that we brought to arbitration a couple months ago regarding uh, workman comp benefits with uh, one specific pilot, right? And um, the company made claims about uh, that pilot specifically and wanting or not wanting to pay that pilot specifically and choices about paying that pilot based on who that pilot was, which is not part of what a contract is uh, with a collective bargaining agreement. Um, uh, 
clear black and white language. They needed to pay him. They did pay him. Uh, but we are now seeing a, a similar argument uh, with long-term disability, right? And uh, in the meeting uh, where the company agreed to pay the four pilots, they opened a new argument uh, that I alluded to while we were reading through the contract language that exposes the pilot who recovers from illness prior to day 90, um, uh, right? So you, uh, you know, break your finger and... Um, they're saying if you're uh, essentially their notion is that if you uh, get well on day 89, that you're not going to be eligible for long-term disability benefits, um, even though you are not eligible for an FAA medical because uh, the FAA hasn't signed off on uh, your finger yet. Um, that isn't what the language says. It is not consistent with practice. And uh, what we see here is a, a shifting moving of the goalposts, right? Uh, and the company is trying to set up uh, uh, what they perceive as a practice or a dynamic, right? Uh, where eligibility for benefits is based on management's sense of justification, right? Are you or are you not uh, justified in asking for your benefit and we're not going to pay you unless we feel that you are justified. That is not what the language says. It's not how eligibility for insurance plans work. And um, I just want to mention on a you know legal basis what practice is. Uh, just because they did it once um, doesn't make it a practice. It needs to be uh, no one had agreed to it at a high level and ubiquitous and widespread. Uh, and there's a little bit more to that as well. Um, no, none of it's agreed to, right? Uh, we take contention with their position. Uh, we're here publicly saying that we take contention with their position. We think it's abhorrent um, and is uh, more or less has no reason to exist other than uh, for the company to uh, have a strategic attack on what has long, long been uncontested contract language, right? Um, like I said, it mirrors uh, what we saw, the workman comp argument, and um, truly the company is trying to, uh, in, in their eyes, establish a practice that allows them to uh, do this based on justification. What is really um, the horrible, horrible thing about this, right? Uh, it's not just the attack on um, the weakest pilots in the group or the people who are hurt um, or trying to hide behind MetLife as, uh, you know, the administrator of the plan who is the, the bad guy saying you can't have your benefits. Um, this is an attempt to distract and delay uh, and create, um, you know, uh, a legal argument that we have to go and defend um, uh, based uh, on their behavior. And it pulls our budget away from defending scheduling issues or uh, from actively uh, seeking implementation of a contract that's now two years old. Um, it busies up ALPA and our legal resources. Um, truly, uh, you know, I don't know if they think, you know, Jody is the only ALPA lawyer, but uh, there's a fleet of people who are going to show up here to uh, push back on these things, right? And, uh, you know, they had one argument before, 
well, you know, we pointed out that that argument was wrong and they shifted their argument into this 90 day argument and they'll be continually shifting. Right. Because their HR benefits administrator that's farmed out to F&H Solutions, which is some kind of ancillary arm of Ford and Harrison, the legal firm that they are hiring to do union mitigation and avoidance strategies. Right. Um, it is an attempt to frame the MEC in ALPA as weak and effective and um, uh, simply is outrageous. Uh, it is a strategy. Uh, it's being ran by uh, Ford and Harrison. And when you uh, open up your benefits uh, emails that you're sending to, you know, HR, uh, look at who is signing those because it's a, a Ford and Harrison lawyer and it says um, a you know, business partner with a Ford, with a Sun Country logo. Um, and they simply uh, have farmed this workout uh, to a union um, avoidance company, right? Uh, so know that they're taking your money that you make uh, off of your work um, and they are hiring people to uh, actively, strategically uh, make sure that you don't get your contract and uh, fight this MEC. And that is uh, pretty disgusting. Um, that said, uh, know that you can buy uh, long-term disability insurance right uh, outside of uh, the contract. Uh, there are ALPA products for this that um, uh, add to uh, and don't offset based on um, the negotiated uh, benefit, right? And whether you buy it from ALPA or somewhere else, I, I really suggest that, that everybody at this airline right now uh, seriously consider going out and buying some long-term disability benefits uh, because um, I don't know where they go with this um, or if they continue to um, drag this out. Uh, clearly, we're going to run it through a formal grievance and an arbitration and know that that is part of their strategy, which is to get us to burn arbitrations on you know, previously uncontested, um, plain black and white language, right? Um, and it, what it does is it takes away another arbitration from, uh, you know, a pilot that needs to be resolved. Um, so very unfortunate, but that's their strategy and that's what they're doing. And every pilot here needs to know that and know what the MEC is up against as they uh, do this stuff. Um, like, the uh, the conversation that we're having on long-term disability, right? Um, I want to walk you through some issues that have emerged with the fatigue program, uh, specifically uh, with uh, SOF positions as well as duty. Uh, just know as we get into this, this is not about the people doing that work. Um, this is about the way the company has chosen to uh, pay these people and about the way that they're scheduling them uh, improperly. And uh, it's it's just as offensive as the LTD stuff. Um, uh, anyways, I'll walk you through it just like everything else. Uh, try to be transparent, let you guys know what we're doing uh, and, and uh, the kind of kind of issues we're running into. So um, this fatigue program, right? Um, all right, well, th this is what the language is right here, right? So section 12 uh, G3A, 
Um, a pilot must contact crew scheduling when he's unable to report for continued flight operations due to fatigue, right? So uh, just saying, if you're fatigued, you have to call in, you have a responsibility to call in fatigued. Um, crew scheduling will connect the pilot with the SOF who will work together on a plan to receive rest and return to duty. Um, this language, uh, what's behind this, right? Uh, is conversations, the negotiating conversations, and what you do when you uh, have, you know, language that you run up against that isn't uh, uh, maybe as tight as you would like. You go back to the people that negotiated it and discuss, uh, you know, what was what was said at the table, what was the meaning of the minds, and what does the language mean on the paper? Um, what were the two sides discussing, and what did they agree to? Right. Um, uh, the I think three people in the room negotiating this uh, on the Alpa side, Zillin and Jody and myself, uh, some many years ago now, right? Um, and what this sentence was meant to do is um, uh, transfer the call to the SOF uh, when it was fatigue related, so that there would be no retribution uh, against the pilot for calling in fatigued, right? Which means that the uh, SOF and the pilot were supposed to have a private discussion about the fatigue. Uh, that was the connecting part. Um, uh, was not uh, that the crew scheduler would perform a three-way call, but in the instance of fatigue would drop off and uh, essentially transfer uh, the pilot to the SOF, right? And the discussion about um, receiving rest and when they might want to return to duty uh, would be done with the SOF and not with the crew scheduler. Uh, we have a grievance moving through the grievance process right now related to crew scheduling, uh, calling and badgering a pilot who is in the middle of a fatigue call. Um, uh, the crew scheduling really shouldn't even know the pilot is in a fatigue call. Uh, when we wrote this stuff, we had discussions about the company needing to code uh, with a, a different code altogether. Um, part of that was this next sentence, right? Paying credit for the assignment for which the pilot called in fatigued will remain on the pilot's crew allowance report until reviewed by the FRB, right? So the FRB body is supposed to determine um, what the um, reason, right, Uh for the fatigue call was, was it uh, induced by the pilot's own behavior? Did you stay up too late playing video games? In which case, uh, the fatigue call would come out of your sick bank, uh, or was it operationally induced uh, in some way, uh, which would result in uh, pay protection for the pilot, right? So no loss of pay in any case, and uh, that the code, right, that was going to go into ECRU wouldn't cause an immediate loss of pay, uh, which you would have to then defend with the FRB until your pay was restored, right? So simply no punitive um, action whatsoever. Uh, you were going to get paid either way, and there would be no loss of pay uh, coded into the system uh, while you waited for the FRB to process your fatigue report. Um, what may be happening or what we understand is happening um, is conversations about fatigue with crew schedulers on the line. That is not supposed to be happening that way. Um, you are supposed to have uh, a level of privacy. Um, and these are some of the um, 
flowcharts that were made um, following, uh, I think, further fatigue discussions in um, negotiations uh, back in uh, December, uh, November, December of 21. But they mirror what uh, we were talking about with the company. Uh, and these were supposed to be uh, training aids given to crew scheduling so they could better understand um, the flow uh, through a fatigue call, right? So pilot calls crew scheduling, they have a scheduling question, is the issue fatigue related? Yes, in which case the scheduler forwards the pilot to the SOF and then leaves the call, okay? Um, these are conversations between both sides and the documents we're looking at on the screen are documents that were made uh, with both sides understanding and discussed with both sides. Um, at the time that uh, we worked through the fatigue policies, right? Uh, so is the f issue fatigue related? No, then the scheduler consults with the supervisor and stays on the call with the pilot, okay? Um, at that point, uh, supervisor agrees uh, the assignment is not legal under the contract of the FARs and the pilot is not assigned the trip, right? Other side of the, uh, the fork here, uh, supervisor believes assignment is legal under contract or FARS, explaining the reason to the pilot um, and ask if they still think there is an issue, right? So what's supposed to happen here is using the SOF um, or the chief pilot uh, in the capacity of uh, decreasing the conflict between the pilot and the crew scheduler, right? Uh, that the argument about uh, the FARs or the argument about uh, legal duty or the contractual argument doesn't take place between the scheduler and the pilot, and instead it happens between another knowledgeable pilot and, um, you know, a, a pilot who uh, may or may not understand exactly what, uh, what the assignment is and how it's being assigned and has the ability to talk to another pilot about that, right? Um, so from here, right, um, supervisor believes assignment is legal under the contract or FARS, yes. Uh, pilot still believes there is an issue, right? Um, uh, and then uh, we move this up into the, the pilot scheduler and SOF having a three-way call, right? At which point, um, uh, you're not talking to just the scheduling supervisor, but you're talking to the SOF and the scheduling, the scheduler and the pilot, and they work through and confirm this, right? Um, it's just simply supposed to show the flow of the telephone calls and uh, how, um, you know, what, uh, what ALPA was concerned with was either the fatigue or the duty questions, right? Um, work rule questions related to the assignment. Uh, section 12, uh, obviously, with uh, with rest rules um, and having, you know, a clear division of duty as to who is supposed to talk to who uh, in order to mitigate contention, right? Um, and make sure that the pilot has some amount of privacy uh, when calling in fatigued. Um, this document was uh, done in conjunction with the other one, right? So uh, this is kind of the deep dive into the fatigue box, right? So is the issue fatigue related? Scheduler forwards pilot to SOF and then leaves the call, um, right? So the scheduler's gone and now we're just the pilot and the SOF having a, a private conversation about uh, fatigue, 
right? This is the deep dive into that box, right? So the, you're hearing the fatigue issue. Is it a fatigue issue? Yes. Ensure the pilot is removed from assignment and placed into rest, right? Um, that's it. That's that's the end of the fatigue protocol, right? Um, uh, the question about, um, you know, when they return to duty, uh, that is a whole nother separate phone call back to the SOF. Hey, I'm ready uh, to go back to work. Put me back in the game coach, right? Um, there is no need to have a conversation with the SOF here at this point about when you're going to return to work or you're going to be well rested in 12 or 14 hours. And there simply isn't a way to know that, uh, how bad your fatigue is. A pilot can't figure that out at the time that they're fatigued anyways. And uh, so there's little or no point in having that discussion, uh, which is why this box does exactly what it does here, right? Um, pilots removed from the assignment and placed into rest, right? And the rest of the fatigue protocol occurs. Um, so what if there is a, par, a FAR 117 violation uh, along with that, right? Yes, uh, confirm with the scheduler and pilot and resolve the issue, right? Uh, nope, there's no 117 issue. Explain the reasoning to the scheduler and pilot and confirm the assignment. Um, and there's no 117 violation. Is there a contractual violation, right? And this is just to look at the assignment and dive into you know, whether whether you're even in the order of assignment at all, right, to confirm whether uh, there's a FAR being violated or a contractual violation, right? So is there a contractual violation? Yes, confirm with the scheduler and pilot and resolve the issue, right? So don't give the guy the, the assignment uh, because there's a contractual violation. No, there's no contractual violation and there's no fatigue issue, right? So you end up in this box, explain that the company believes this uh, assignment to be contractually compliant, explain fly, flying grief procedures and refer the pilot to help, right? Um, and uh, last box down here, everyone, everyone in this conversation is unsure. They don't know. Contact an ALPA status rep, right? That's what we do day in, day out. Um, is deal with uh, the question about uh, the contract, right? Uh, in one seventeen, um, it's part of the job is to to know that stuff and know it well and be able to be conversant and answer a question uh, at two in the morning, right? Uh, so uh, unsure about the contract, this is the person to call, right? And that was to get the SOF and the pilot uh, together with the status rep, right? Captain rep or FO rep and have a conversation about the violation or the assignment, right? And help defray some of the contention and uh, anxieties that go along with uh, assignments and crew schedulers, right? All right. So as I said, these are just, uh, you know, handouts that were supposed to go to, to uh, the SOFs and the chief pilots, um, and we're supposed to uh, help these schedulers understand what parts of the conversations they were uh, involved in or not involved in. Um, so who is the SOF, right? Uh, supervisor of flying or SOF means the on-call chief pilot or their designee. Um, so this is just a straight copy paste of the contract language, right? Definition of the supervisor of flying. Note that they're a supervisor, right? Um, management position, um, making decisions about uh, pilots and duty, right? Uh, so they're the on-call chief pilot, right? Uh, so the FAR required uh, on-call chief pilot, right? 
or the pilot uh, supervisor that they are uh, delegating their authority to, right? Um, note that it needs to be a management pilot. It is a supervisor. It needs to be a pilot, right, which is this or their pilot designee, because it's important that the designee wasn't, um, you know, a caterer or whoever happened to be standing around. Um, it needs to be a pilot, someone who understands uh, duty questions, right? Uh, someone who's on the seniority list, not someone who's retired, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, that was the commitment that was made here, right, uh, with the uh, SOF construct. So um, what was contemplated, right, is the chief pilot is really the primary person, um, assistant chief pilots, right, uh, supervisor of flying. Um, or uh, someone in, say, Dan Carey's position, um, right, who is a management pilot, who is uh, capable of answering these questions. And um, at the time, uh, they were using people who were also on a full month um, uh, special projects, right? And that is really the only way that special projects is to work, is to be full month. Um, and uh, you were basically either a management pilot or working as a management pilot uh, as a, uh, an SOF, right? So um, the whole idea was 24-hour coverage and uh, the ability to uh, facilitate fatigue calls and 117 duty questions 24-7. Uh, I know the company had some interest in that uh, SOF position being able to do uh, you know, questions about write-ups and uh, maintenance and a whole bunch of other uh, things, right? But what ALPA was concerned with in the context of the fatigue letter, which birthed the notion of a supervisor of flying, um, was questions about 117 and fatigue calls. And the notion was that this was going to be a position that was staffed uh, all day long, every day, so that uh, a pilot could have a conversation with another pilot about their fatigue call. Um, and not have retribution from a crew scheduler who now had more work to do because you called in fatigue, right? Uh, and then as a result, you got a bad schedule for the next uh, three months. Um, do you need to explain to crew scheduling why you want to speak to the soft? No. Um, uh, we held conversations um, at the time that we signed the fatigue letter uh, with the pilot group, all pilot calls, etc., um, no, there's no reason to explain to the crew schedule why you want to talk to the SOF. Uh, the question was supposed to be just as simple as I want to talk to the SOF. Uh, no, what is this about? Um, I know in the last week I've had at least one call from a pilot uh, who was denied uh, the ability to talk to the SOF and was told uh, that the only reason that they can talk to a SOF is due to a fatigue call and because their question was duty related. Uh, the uh, soft was not available. Um, uh, unfortunate, uh, that pilot was smart enough to move up uh, directly to the chief pilot and uh, get their question resolved, right? But clearly, uh, crew scheduling was unaware of what the soft's job is or what their role is. Um, so, as I've said, you know, Part 117, FOM, fire regulations, operational issues, maintenance issues, right? Um, so, and one of the next questions here, right, is um, when someone is performing uh, office duty, right? So 
um, working in the capacity of a chief pilot, uh, you know, at home or in Building C or, um, uh, you know, doing uh, SOF work, uh, that is administrative work for the company. And it is duty under Part 117.3, right? So um, FAR here says um, uh, duty as defined in 117.3 means uh, any task that a flight crew member performs as required by the certificate holder, uh, including but not limited to flight duty periods, uh, flight duty, pre- and post-flight duties, administrative work, importantly, uh, training, deadhead transportation, aircraft positioning on the ground, aircraft loading, and aircraft servicing. Notice that you don't have to be paid for the administrative work. You uh, don't uh, necessarily need to um, have been asked by the carrier to perform the work. Uh, if you are doing administrative work on the part of the company, that is duty. And uh, we have been asking for a long time how that is being tracked. Uh, we're not getting answers. And um, we're concerned about, uh, you know, every aspect of uh, a pilot uh, doing office work and uh, whether or not that office work is being tracked in names. Um, and it doesn't appear that it, it is properly being tracked. Um, I'll expand on that a little bit more. Um, so, uh, as I've said, compensation isn't relevant. And, uh, you know, as a chief pilot performing uh, duty under 117, um, you know, working in building C, or for that matter, you know, working remotely, is that administrative duty? Yes, it needs to be tracked. And then some questions start to evolve here, too, right? Um, about whether or not you can uh, say, um, as a, a pilot doing administrative work, if you've done six hours of administrative work, uh, what's your max duty day, right? Uh, how long can you go fly? And you're still limited to the contractual requirements like any other pilot uh, in terms of duty day in section 12 and subject to, um, you know, the table A, table B, all of that, right? Um, and the work that was done, uh, administrative work, needs to be accounted for um, both before or after, uh, you know, going flying. Um, here's a, you know, what, what's actually happening with the, these softs um, is they're being asked to perform 24 hours of duty. Uh, this is a, a straight contract violation. It's a violation of Section 12C1, right? Uh, on-duty limitations and, uh, and required rest. So uh, a pilot um, will not be scheduled, rescheduled, assigned, or reassigned for an on-duty period, which will end later than 16 hours following the end of the most recent uh, rest period required by this agreement or the limitations in FAR 117, right? So um, you come out of your required rest period uh, the longest day that you can work no matter what. Um, under uh, specific to uh, section 12C1 is 16 hours. Um, so contractually, uh, say so you go do eight hours of uh, of office work, right? Um, work nine to five. Uh, the notion that you can go and fly 10 hours afterwards um, is not acceptable under the contract, isn't ac acceptable under the FARs either. 
Um, and indeed, uh, we did a voluntary disclosure some time back through ASAP with uh, ELPA volunteers, right? Because the ELPA volunteers work, um, administrative work um, through scheduling wasn't being tracked under um, uh, with AIMS. And we disclosed and the FAA, uh, you know, had, had conversations with our, our scheduling people to say, listen, you're, you're still obligated to all of the 117 restrictions and you can't do a full day of work in uh, in building C and then go, um, uh, you know, work a, a full a full duty day. Um, can't do it. And um, even if you're not paid and even if you're volunteering. Um, so uh, clearly not OK to work 24 hours of duty. Right. Um, likewise, 12 uh, C to B on duty limitations. So uh, in the same section of the contract, a pilot's on duty period shall not exceed 12 hours or 13 actual hours for any on-duty period that occurs or will occur between the hours of uh, 0201 and 0459. Uh, clearly, if you're working a 24-hour uh, SOF uh, shift, um, you're going over uh, these hours, and uh, clearly uh, that duty day cannot be longer than um, uh, 12, right? Uh, simply can't work 24 hours in a row. Uh, can a pilot volunteer to perform 24 hours of duty, right? So can you ask or can the company even ask? No. Uh, Section 25T3, uh, the company shall not solicit nor accept offers from a pilot to violate contractual, so the Section 12 stuff, or FAR limitations, right? So uh, 117.3. Uh, and the company shall not enter into arrangements with individual pilots to violate the FARs or this agreement, right? So the company can't uh, ask the pilot to uh, to violate. Uh, so company should not be asking um, pilots to work 24 hours in a row. Um, and the company uh, shall not solicit or accept offers from pilots to do the same. So the pilot cannot uh, volunteer for uh, duty like that, and the uh, company cannot uh, ask the pilot to do it. Um, yeah, importantly, can't exceed the FARs, right? So um, does the SOF need to be a management pilot, right? And I think the, the definition here in Section 10 is pretty clear about what a management pilot is. It's a, it's a pilot, right? Uh, capital P pilot. Uh, so on the seniority list, um, so designated by the company who is responsible for managing pilots or administering company policy with respect to pilots and flight operations, right? Which is what a supervisor of flying was intended to capture. Um, these guys are not supposed to be bidding lines and then uh, doing one-off days of SOF work called an office day. There is no rubric under the contract to allow for that. Uh, special projects doesn't allow for that. Um, note, uh, as you dig into what special projects is, which is also in uh, section 10, um, uh, right, management pilots, um, that uh, this is done by the month, uh, not by the day. There's a mechanism to pay in addition to um, 
you know, the status for the month as a special projects pilot, a pilot who uh, did not bid flying on uh, a day as a special projects pilot, but um, uh, simply not um, done by the day. It's by the month and it's a status uh, special projects, right? And in the management uh, section of the contract, uh, because they are management pilots. Right. Um, and note that there's a limitation on how many of them you can have. And um, there's also a limitation on uh, leaving that position and how soon you can return to a, a management position. So uh, we have some issues to work through um, with the company uh, and the FAA. Uh, we're going to um, uh, ask that the company do a voluntary disclosure, um, uh, both with the chief pilots for duty and make sure that their duty is tracked and uh, anyone who has been working in the SOF positions, and then we'll work through the contract violations that have resulted as well. Um, yeah, sorry, today's call is pretty long. Um, if anybody has any questions, happy to, to air those out. Um, but uh, quite a bit of stuff going on and uh, important that we uh, get that news out to everybody so they understand the issues. All right. Yeah, Doug, I uh, see so you got your hand up. Um, go ahead. You have the floor. Uh, any update on crew meals? Uh, we've been talking about it, I know, a while ago, but any update on it, when we can expect to see them or any progress? Um, expect to see changes in the crew meals or processing of crew meals, um, like payouts? Either or, uh, but... Mainly the yeah. second part of getting new ones, because uh, as much as we love the chicken, it is getting old. Yeah, um, no, uh, the company uh, has not uh, met with, um, uh, I think Kitsch was doing tasting, maybe another one or two guys. Um, they have not brought anybody back in to do any tasting on new meals. Um, we still believe that uh, the contract is not being met in terms of variety, uh, simply having the same meal for lunch every day and the same meal for dinner every day for a month uh, is not variety. And, um, you know, in terms of the processing, uh, there was a really significant backlog, I think over a thousand um, uh, issues. I know like the first half of October was uh, 400 alone, right? Uh, the company has delegated um, the processing of crew meals to, you know, someone in catering uh, who has come up with a myriad of different um, self-imposed notions about what is or is not uh, a legitimate uh, claim, um, including imposing their own $25 limit. Uh, we're working through those on a one-off basis with upper management, uh, the $25 limit, they were, you know, super clear that yeah, that's not, not what was agreed to, um, and went to that catering manager to clean up that problem right away. Uh, however, um, uh, just the, the steady stream of other very, very significant issues, right, uh, is mitigating our ability to make progress on this um uh lots happening any more on that doug no thank you yeah 
anyone else? Questions, comments, uh, other issues you want to clarify? All right. Um, seeing none, and we're running up on the two-hour mark, I usually try to wrap these up at the two-hour mark. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and shut it down until next week, Tuesday. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for sitting through the conversations. Please try to uh, help everybody understand some of the risks uh, that uh, the lack of tracking on 117, um, uh, it puts all of us at risk at this company. Um, please try to um, seek out uh, advice uh, from either us or from a chief pilot. The chief pilot's uh, understand that there's some issues going on here so um uh, thanks everyone for sticking it out and uh, listening to the conversation take care bye-bye